Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. At the beginning of the 20th century, surrealists such as André Breton and Man Ray played a game called Exquisite Corpse. You can play it by drawing or by writing, and the rules are very simple. Let's say you're writing. You would write the beginning of a story or a poem at the top of a piece of paper and, when you're finished, fold the paper so that only the last line of the poem or the story is visible. Then you'd hand the paper over to another player, and this person would add to the story or poem, knowing only that little bit of language. Then this player would fold the paper and pass it along. On the story or poem would go, jumping from topic to topic, from style to style, depending on how the next person added to it, until it's done. That's it. The result is usually highly fragmented and often fascinating. Things that aren't normally put together are suddenly combined. Poems, stories, and in the case of drawing, images that seem impossible are suddenly on the page in front of you, asking you to consider them as a connected whole. The name of the game purportedly came from a phrase one of the surrealists wrote the first time they played it. The exquisite corpse shall drink the new wine. I've played it numerous times, and it's always fascinating to see what emerges but I've never understood why it's so fascinating until I had the pleasure of reading Aaron Edwards' new book, The Modernist Corpse, Post-Humanism and the Posthumous. In her insightful study, Edwards examines the presence of the corpse in modernist literature and changes the ways we understand what a corpse is and even who and what counts as being fully alive. I finished Edward's book with the startling insight that exquisite corpse, far from being just an odd surrealist experiment, might be a more accurate way for art to capture our world and the things that live in it with us than more traditional poems, stories, and paintings. To say it another way, Edward shows us that, in the work of modernist artists, the corpse, whether exquisite or not, might be the best way to show us what it really means to be alive. Aaron Edwards, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for having me and for talking to me today. Well, you are the author of The Modernist Corpse, Posthumanism, and The Posthumous, and we are looking forward to talking about it today. Uh, so I was wondering if you could start us off with something very basic, which is I can imagine a lot of listeners, right? The default assumption will be, well, a corpse is a, a person who's dead, perhaps even no longer a person, right? The the physical, material body that remains. And as we enter your book, that's not really the viewpoint. You ask us to, to think of the corpse as something very different. And I'm wondering if you could introduce us to this shift in perspective. Yeah, exactly. Um, So uh, my project started really not necessarily by thinking about the corpse, but by wanting to ask, you know, as you're saying, some really basic questions about the body. And um, I wanted to ask what a body is, 
um, what its boundaries are, how the body is a phenomenon of both discourse and matter, um, and how we can detect and read bodies in texts. And in looking at modernist texts in particular, I was um, really drawn towards um, corpses and was sort of surprised to discover that some of the most lively bodies in modernist texts were actually corpses, that they were taking over the narrative, that they were endowed with figurative language that we normally associate with living bodies, that they were expressive. Um, so I wanted to focus on the corpse as a site through which modernist authors are are interrogating what a body is. And I think in my field, there, um, in my time period, there are a number of historical pressures that are um, contributing to the prominence of the corpse in modernism. Um, there's World War I and a kind of aftermath of culture trying to deal with the scale of death. Um, relatedly, there's a redefinition of the body in the early 20th century through technology, which you know enhances the ability to maim and kill bodies, but also extends life and um, particularly through technical media, gives us ways to preserve um, the life and access the voices and images of the dead. Um, and also in, a, in an American context, um, the corpse has a prominence in modernism in terms of um, thinking through the atrocities and the aftermath of slavery and um, lynching and lynching photography in the early 20th century. So given this historical context, um, I really started to, to think quite seriously about corpses, not just as a site for literary, artistic experimentation and representation, um, but as a way that modernists were seriously questioning the categories of the living and the dead and who counts as living and who counts as dead and how that impacts um, the way that we understand what it means to be human. Um, so my project places modernism in conversation with posthumanism and focuses on the corpse as a, a literally posthuman um, site, um, as um, a body that's really decomposing, if you will, the traditional humanist subject, its autonomy, um, its boundaries. Um, the corpse in modernism is often um, challenging what we might think of as the boundaries between the human and the environment that surrounds it as the corpse decomposes and sort of enters into uh, engagement with larger vitalities. Um, and I think that this, you know, is an, is an important question to think about because it has ethical implications. Um, so if um, we challenge the basic categories of the living and the dead, um, I think we're, as I'm trying to do in my book, um, also challenging other forms of culture, cultural binaries that accrue around these basic categories so that the understandings of binary categories of race, of gender, of sexual orientation are often associated with um, the living or the dead so that some subjects appreciate and enjoy the full privileges of being human while other subjects are um, vulnerable to either social death or, or literal death. Um, so I wanted to focus, um, as you're asking me, on the liveliness of, of the dead, you know, what we've pre previously thought of as being dead, as a way to kind of 
reorient and challenge our understanding of of what it means to be human. Um, and I, I found I was I wrote a blog post a little bit later for University of Minnesota, and I was really sort of surprised and delighted to find that a lot of um, alternative death movements are similarly um, focusing on the energy and vitality of the corpse. So even from a, a very sort of basic physical point of view, um, they're re-understanding the corpse in terms of being an energy source. Um, there's a project at Columbia University Death Lab, for, for instance, that's sort of transforming the corpse into visible light. And I think that these um, these projects that are in various ways thinking about the corpse as a body that has energy, vitality, um, and that maybe seeds the human life to forms of non-human life um, all all sort of had a bearing on the way I was thinking about modernism. That's fascinating. And and I think what might be helpful as we we chart the territory for our listeners of of what you're exploring is that when you talk about humanism, right, and the idea of the human, we might have this default assumption that, that you know, we're talking about a, a natural, political, free category of, you know, Humans are those people you point to and interact with and things like that. But but when you take up the discourse of post-humanism, right, you have a different idea of what it means to be human. It's historical. It comes with certain associations. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the post-human idea of, of what a human is? Yeah, that's a really useful question. Um, so, you know, post-humanism, which I would think of as um, a sort of diverse range of theoretical approaches are all sort of commonly challenging, um, as you're saying, a certain historical understanding of the human and um, wanting to think about the human as really a discursive category that that has been redefined throughout history, um, that doesn't have stable meanings, and that, you know, more problematically, is an exclusionary category. So, you know, while it humanism often promotes the the values of, um, you know, equality for everyone and the the notion that everyone is sort of endowed with um, higher intelligence and whatever sort of exceptional properties we want to think about the human possessing, in practice, um, those privileges and rights center on just a few subjects. <laughs> so um, my project, along with other post-human theorists, is really wanting to, to challenge um, how we have understood the human as a discursive philosophical subject. And um, wanting to sort of, um, you know, in some ways, I think one of the misconceptions about posthumanism is that it's anti-humanistic. And, and for my project in particular, I would say um, I'm really in alignment with a lot of the ethical goals of humanism, of, you know, achieving what has often been characterized as human rights. Um, but I think for, for me and, and other thinkers that I'm engaging with in my project, um, the human is something of a contaminated category, <laughs> that it doesn't provide us with a useful basis um, to think ethically about rights of subjects, because historically, it doesn't have a very good track record. <laughs> um, 
so maybe to give a, a clarifying example, something like in the in the period you're studying, to speak of humans or or those that are categorized in human, you certainly have the the white male American subject as as yes, that's that's a human, but the Haitian woman, yeah, right. That, that that would be a problem of categorization. Um, and so how do you bring her experience into recognition, into presence, into a full range of, I guess, representation wouldn't be the word you would use. What, what, what would be the aim here? Yeah, I mean, I think I would use representation. I mean, I think a lot of the ways that the the human is sort of circulated is through representation. Um, so the introduction of my book looks at, um, you know, briefly looks at Haiti through the prominence of the figure of the zombie in early Hollywood film. Um, and I'm positioning that as, as sort of uh, – part of a phenomenon in early 20th century film in which um, many, many different kinds of cinematic texts are just sort of populated with the dead. And there's a real emphasis in early film on, uh, you know, Frankenstein, vampires, zombies in various ways. Um, and I was, I was, you know, really fascinated by why that is. And I think part of that is the medium of film and it, that it's engaging with, you know, questions of how film can bring things to life. Um, but I but I think, you know, probably more important from a cultural point of view is is how these texts circulate representations of, of who counts as dead. And um, in early 20th century zombie films, uh, there's a real association between racialized bodies and dead bodies. And I think it contributes to a normative association um, between blackness and death and whiteness and life. So that's just one discrete example. But um, I'm looking at, you know, similar representational associations between death and certain subjects and, uh, you know, the liveliness of other subjects and and thinking about how those representations contribute to a larger understanding about a, a very limited definition of who who really counts as humans, whose lives matters and whose lives don't matter. So so these are wonderful high stakes questions um, that that feel like they have a contemporary pressing relevance in all kinds of ways. So so tell us, right? Why why should we look to literature? Like, what is it about this period that gives us a window into these big and important questions that you're taking up? You know, why take us back to the early 20th century and in some of these narratives? What's the what's the yield there? What's the bonus of of taking a close look at the characters and corpses in these texts? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, and I, I think, you know, one of the things that that um that I was attempting to do in my book was was to sort of move some of these contemporary discourses about the posthuman um, back into the early 20th century, um, and I'll I'll say a little bit more about why. I think in in some ways the posthuman is so easy to see in contemporary culture, um, and has produced a lot of theories about um, you know the erosion of the human as we are more and more engaged with digital culture with machines. 
Um, cybernetic forms of life are very easy to read in terms of how they're challenging the human. And I really specifically wanted to take readers back to modernism and back to literary modernism in particular in order to argue, um, to, to discover a much longer trajectory of challenging the human that's not just technologically determined, that's not just a consequence of technological determinism. In other words, we don't need to just rethink the human because of our engagement with machines. And I wanted to look at the array of cultural forces that have historically gone into producing the human, um, that are challenging the human. And um, I think it gives us a more um, a more nuanced understanding of um, the way that the complex ways that that we continually sort of reproduce what it means to be human, um, and I'm just I've discovered a lot of I think continuities between um, early 20th century and the contemporary moment, and um, wanting to argue that the the processes of modernity and modernization are not over. That that some of the challenges that early 20th century subjects we're grappling with are, are still um, challenges that we're, that we're thinking through um, in quite similar ways today. And, and I think to go back to your question about, you know, why literature in, in particular, um, I mean, I think in some ways I'm trying to sort of shift the ways that we've traditionally engaged with literature um, which has itself been quite a force in defining what it means to be human. Um, a lot of literary texts offer great models about how to how to behave as a human, how to function. Um, and I'm wanting to sort of shift our reading practices away from focusing just on the human center and revisit um, some texts that we think we are familiar with and ask some unfamiliar questions about what happens if we focus not on the human point of view, but the point of view of the animal um, and think about literary texts from non-anthropocentric points of view. Um, and to ask, for instance, you know, not what death means, because I think we have a long sort of critical tradition of thinking about death, but thinking about the text from the point of view of the corpse and asking how that would change our engagement with the text if we if we try to think from the point of view of of a non-human entity and i think modernism is really um situated to to do those kinds of reading because it's so experimental and it's not just focused on plot and character and it's often challenging normative reading practices um, it's not like some contemporary sci-fi text, which I love and am very interested in sort of just tracking the plot of how the human and the non-human encounter one another. But it's really contesting through some very basic representational practices, um, you know, how we read, <laughs> how we read a body, how we read what it means to be human, um, focusing on literature as um, fractured as full of cuts, as nonlinear, as having thing-like properties itself. There's a big sort of tradition in early 20th century poetics that's focus focusing on thingness, um, 
no ideas, but in things, for example. So I, I feel like modernism has a lot to offer in terms of um, challenging how discourses of the human produce what we think of as a humanist subject and how literature is also really involved in contesting those too. That's that's great. I, I, I think I want to highlight at least two things that you said, because um, for me, they, they create part of the excitement of reading your book. Um, one is, is this thing at one point you call the, the necrocentric perspective, right? Looking um, at, at, the bodies in these in these stories, looking at them from their perspective, rather than the way we always do, which is who's the main character in this story and who are they and how are they feeling and all that sort of stuff. So we get this exciting new perspective, um, and 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 then right, what you've also got and you hit on in, in your comment just a second ago is that. For those those of us interested in thinking about the post-human, there's almost this fetish around technology and you know, sci-fi is the place we go and do it, and AI and things like this. And and you kind of give us this perspective of of no wait, 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 right? Um if you're really taking this this necrocentric perspective, um, technology is not the only place you want to look. It suddenly opens up the field of vision, um, and you start to get something, you know, namely things like embodiment and bringing back the body instead of looking towards circuitry and chemistry and things like that. Um, so these these become exciting ways to start to encounter the novels that you take us into and the ideas that that you're in conversation with. Um, but this. One of the, the the things that I really loved about the book is, okay, we have this this common view among readers of literature. I might just say undergraduates encountering modernist literature for the first time or something, which is it's so hard, right? It's it's fractured. It's all this experimentation. Oh God, do I have to read the wasteland again? It's you know, um, and and the traditional view is you know well it's it's about complexity or it's about you know experimentation and and like you said it's about this anti-humanist impulse we don't want narratives to do the same thing anymore um, but it feels hostile and and you suddenly come up with this perspective of no actually you can look about it as as a project that's ethical as a project that's trying to to capture something about the interconnected nature of our ontology, that it's not raising humans above every other species being and thing, but kind of figuring out how to put them next to each other. Um, so, so what does that look like with one of these modernist texts, right? That seems really difficult. So, you know, Faulkner's really tough to read, somebody might say. How does that toughness get us to a new place? Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you so much for that question. And I think I think the text I want to go to is um, is the text that I end with, uh, which is Gertrude Stein's Tinder Buttons, which is just a very, you know, in some ways could be construed as a hostile <laughs> text to read, as as you note. And just I think when I when I teach that text, I, you know, it just poses some really basic questions. How do we read this? You know, what do we do with this text? Um, what is it? What kind of a thing is it? And it's, you know, it's three se- sections or objects, food and room. So it's really asking questions about things. And I think we have to ask what kind of a thing is this text? Is it poetry? Is it prose? There don't seem to be any humans in this text. There's a 
bunch of things. They're not behaving like the things we know and um, the things that we um, think ought to be behaving in the ways that are that are quotidian to us. Um, but I also think, like in terms of of teaching that text, I I like that sort of very basic questioning of what things are and and Stein's tender buttons like a lot of modernist texts while on the one hand they are you know very challenging very experimental um, they might be construed as being sort of hostile to people who don't feel they have the reading background to understand these texts. I think, you know, what what meaning is and what understanding um, is are, are really being contested in modernism. Um, you know, while all these things are happening, they're also asking very everyday questions. Um, you know, Stein's Tinder Buttons is taking us into thinking about our relationship with our food and with things and with clothing and with rooms. And so if I can, you know, invite myself as a reader and invite my students and maybe the readers of my book into, you know, thinking through things that we live with in a very basic way, but but thinking through them in unfamiliar ways, um, then I think reading becomes um, exciting and not hostile. And, and I think that you know, challenging the way we read is, you know, as I sort of keep reiterating, has has ethical stakes. And instead of putting us in a more familiar literary domain where we're following a character through a world that um, is constructed in a more or less predictable way, um, experimental modernism uh, and and Stein to continue with my example are are asking us to to think about questions such as who gets to speak in a political context what voices dominate who do we listen to whose voices matter um, you know what kinds of listening are we doing with the things around us? Are we just sort of hierarchically using them and dominating them and not attending to their vitality? And I think shifting our attention towards the vitality of, you know, small things like the food that we engage with, um, much larger things like the corpses that we want to um, just sort of relegate to the category of be, being inert um, ramifies outward in terms of how we also treat other humans and our willingness to read them, if you will, in new ways and engage with their complexity in, in ways that aren't given to us in advance. So so one of the things that I think is is a bonus of really sharp and, and, and keen criticism like yours is that if you read it, you want to go back and and check out the stories that are being discussed, check out the poems, look at the paintings again, or or you know hopefully we'll get to checking out Crazy Cat, which is somebody else that you talk about. Um, so so let's say that one of our listeners is you know on the treadmill or in the car, right, and decides, okay, I'm I'm, I'm going to take Aaron up on this. This sounds fascinating. I'm going to go back. I'm going to download Gertrude Stein and I'm going to read it. Um, what, what would be like the, you know, if they had some sort of mantra to keep in mind or to think about as the, as the going got tough, if it did, what would you want that to be? Like, 
keep going, think of, you know, or, or be aware of, or ask yourself this in the middle of, of part two? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, maybe the mantra I would advise, although I'm skeptical about mantras, I think, but that's a... That's absolutely fine. You can completely undo the question if it presupposes the wrong assumptions. Um, but here they are. They have Tinder buttons in front of them. They have Tinder buttons in front of them. And, um, you know, it's presenting itself or maybe it's just not presenting itself in a way we recognize at all. And one of the questions I wanted to conclude with in um, discussing Tinder buttons was also thinking about texts as bodies, um, because the project as a whole is is informed by uh, Deleuze and Guattari's turning back to vitalism and thinking about um, you know, what has been called by Manuel DeLanda a flat ontology, thinking through um, relationships among humans, animals, things, um, in terms of how they're all sort of bound and invested with a common vitality. Um, so a question in in approaching tender buttons is, you know, what sort of reading practices do we bring to a literary text, to a film, to a photograph, to a work of art um, that might be like engaging with another body, for instance? And how do we read bodies and what's at stake in the way we engage with other bodies? Um, so one of my big tropes in the book is is launching a critique against um, autopsy, not as a necessary medical practice, but as a mode of vision and engagement that's been circulated in much broader context, that's positioning the viewer, the reader in a distance position and sort of positioning the body of the text, of the other, of the thing, as this object for distance investigation, for penetration, for dissection. And what I might invite the reader who's um, going to download Tinder buttons um, at the gym and read it on the, <laughs> on the, on the treadmill. <laughs> I love, I love. Well, this it's, it's, I think there's, there's questions about assemblage and, and where we're positioned physically as we read is, is part of what I'm, wanting to ask and, you know, think about the vitalism of, of the reader as, as a kind of active engagement. And so I might sort of encourage, you know, that reader um, or the reader who's in a more sort of traditionally disembodied position of reading at the desk to think about that um, relationship of, of vitalism and um, to question where they can detect liveliness in a text and to be open to thinking about life in unfamiliar ways. Because I think when we really sort of defamiliarize our approach to literature, it's often quite surprising. And they'll, you know, there are sections where objects are speaking sometimes quite literally. Um, and so, you know, I think while posthumanism gives us gives some people a way of interpreting texts that might feel challenging to the way that they they think we ought to be reading or thinking critically. Um, it's also um, asking us to read quite literally. What is the text doing? What is it endowing with life? Um, and 
and what does it mean to really give our attention to what the text wants us to pay attention to? And um, how might that change our understanding of what we're doing as readers and, you know, what kind of reading lens we're bringing, not just to a text, but to the world around us too. That's really great. So, so my question is going to be, what does life look like in a text when you're reading this way? And I, to frame that, um, I want to say that, that in my experience, you're absolutely right that the, a lot of the, at least the pedagogical and certainly in, in the creative writing world from which I'm from, the, the, the workshop ways of, of reading stories, texts, poems, is to see them as a kind of body or as, as Auden said, a, a kind of machine that have parts and people talk about, you know, dissecting the meaning here, which presupposes that they're this dead corpse um, or taking them apart, right? Pulling out this piece and putting it over here. And, and so the language is very much like the autopsy and, and it's, it's such an entrenched way of thinking. So to suddenly see, vitalism is running through text and, and that that's the way we should encounter them as, as these bodies, as these other sorts of things. What do we look for as signs of life? Like how do you begin pointing and saying, aha, there it is. And there it is not. Um, what would, what would that approach look like in a concrete way? Maybe. Right. Um, well, I think you're, you know, exactly right in terms of like, you know, explaining some of the analogies between autopsy and interpretation. And, and I did a bit of um, social science research into people talking about <clears throat> what happens in an autopsy and how they're trying to interpret a body, how they're trying to seek meaning inside the body that's somehow buried within it if they can only extract it and pull it out. Um, and I was, you know, sort of delighted and surprised by how how easy it was to sort of import that into into a larger interpretive context outside the morgue. Um, but to to answer your question about you know what does that look like, um, I think that you know the text that really sort of excited me at the beginning of this project was as I lay dying, and um, you know in some ways the 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 challenge there about what counts as life is really obvious. It's all focused on Addie Bundren's body um, being, you know, horrifically dragged <laughs> through um, the South Mississippi landscape towards burial. And she undergoes all of these ordeals. And um, Faulkner gives that body a lot of narrative attention, a lot of focus. And it that culminates in uh, the literal speaking of her body, um, Addie gets a narrative section um, that's very hard to situate within the more realistic frame of the novel. Um, she's dead at that point, but she has a narrative. Um, but I think what what interested me was the way that um, you know Faulkner's willingness to kind of let a corpse speak also allowed a whole range of other entities and objects that we might think of as dead to speak at the same time. Um, so, you know, in terms of your question, what does life look like? What does unfamiliar, you know, post-human life look like in a text? It's sort of all over the, the material world of, um, of, 
of that novel and how, you know, wheels talk in the novel, how water speaks, um, how a fish has a very um, interesting life that doesn't just um, remain invested in its own boundaries. It's literally consumed by the other characters. Um, There's a kind of transference of life that happens Um, you know, in and around Addie's dead body, um, in and around her sort of speaking body, um, that, that, you know, is not just like, you know, let's look at the fish and see what happens to it. There is a kind of description of an assemblage of life forms. And each of those sort of transfers remakes the entity as we know it. And we sort of have to think about, the way life um, functions in texts as it is intercorporeal, as it emerges through very specific interactions between humans and things. Um, and that really, you know, challenges um, how we've thought of, traditionally thought of the human, that its vitality often emerges from engaging with some kind of dead matter. Um, so uh, life is you know, not just about listening to objects or reading objects carefully or listening to corpses and reading corpses, but sort of tracking um, how matter functions systemically in networks and assemblages um, in unpredictable forms of movement and transfer. And I, and I think I can imagine a listener saying that I had never thought of Faulkner in that way, right? Um, that you suddenly get this this transformed vision, and I just want to let that that same listener know that you're taking up topics as diverse as as race in the American South, as technology and mechanization, um, and even love, right? Changes when you start to look at it from this perspective. Um, so something that, as you mentioned, we often think of as as the most humanizing of things, maybe as much as reason. Um, and so, so could you just maybe tell us a little bit of what love looks like from the netrocentric point of view? Yeah, um, which is a humbling question. I don't sort of purport to, you know, be someone who can pronounce on on love and what it means to to be good at love. What does love um, invite you to tell us as we look through. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a difficult. I think it's been an under-theorized topic, you know, as important as love is, it seems to be sort of off limits in some ways for academic discourse as if it's not a serious topic or it's just somehow too sentimental or too elusive to to discuss. But but I, I wanted to, to think about it um, in Gina Barnes' Nightwood in particular and uh, to raise some questions about how, as you say, love has been one of the the traditional determinants of the human and, you know, like, like reason, something we sort of assume that only humans are capable of. And, um, that's often sort of talked about as if it's like the apex of human experience, love, the ultimate meaning. And, um, what I wanted to, to challenge in that, that chapter in my book was the way that, that, uh, love is often privileged as um, taking place between um, heterosexual couples involved in reproduction. Um, its most legitimate forms are founded in 
the family. And, and so love in some ways becomes a kind of technology for reproducing the human and excluding other subjects who are sort of outside of the reproductive family. And I wanted to think about what in some ways was a, was a challenging um, association, but the way Juna Barnes thinks about um, queerness through an association with the corpse and, um, and I wrote that with a real kind of acute awareness about the 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 danger of not wanting to reinscribe queerness as occupying a position of social death. Um, but in some ways, that's that's the challenge that I'm sort of posing to myself in each of my chapters is to to look at subjects who've been traditionally relegated to death and and reread them um, through the way literary texts are understanding them. And in Juno Barnes' Nightwood, that association with death is, is, you know, has a destructive element of wanting to kind of challenge and uh, deconstruct, decompose the normative, heteronormative, reproductive couple as being the valid center of, of culture. Um, but it also has a very expansive dimension too and invites us to to think about the way love does not just occur between two subjects and I'm, I'm not talking necessarily about bringing more people into the picture um, but thinking about uh, the way love involves you know assemblages and exchanges um, that we can't understand through the strictly human frame and sort of positioning um, the context through which people um, experience love, uh, which I, I don't mean in any way to dismiss the, you know, the, the value and the, the meaning of love. I'm in, interested in, in privileging that, but, but re-understanding it. Um, so thinking about um, the other kinds of um, assemblages of objects that are engaged in um, in the experience of love, which you know sounds deadening to sort of refer to objects, but you know as I'm doing in other chapters, I'm wanting to kind of revitalize um, objects and think about human relationships as invested in exchanges of information, of data. Um, as involving a merging of other kinds of networks of humans that aren't just, you know, the merging of two families that happens through heterosexual marriage, um, thinking about exchanges of artworks, cultural artifacts, um, and 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 taking an expansive approach to thinking about how how assemblages are necessary to kind of theorizing what happens in through the experience of, of love. <laughs> I think uh, I mentioned Auden in a slightly negative way um, a little earlier back, but, you know, he, he had said, um, you know, you read books, but books also read you. Um, and I like the idea that, you know, we talk about the books we love, but I like to think of books saying, but I love this particular reader, right? Or, or this place on the shelf. Um, and I think that, that you pick up a lot of books in the modernist corpse that would love that they, that they've got to encounter you as their reader. Um, and, and with that, I, I want to know a little bit about, you know, you've been thinking about some, some huge 
thematic and formal issues in in this manuscript where where are you going next in your thinking in your work yeah um uh, where i'm going next is in some ways uh, a shift away from the corpse i was you know at the end of that project in a little bit of a sense happy to turn away from the corpse. Um, but in some ways, it, it has a lot of continuities as being an extension of my interest in um, the post-human and the non-human. So what I'm working on right now is a book project that focus, focuses on nests. Um, and I'm really interested in the sort of intersection of human and non-human nests and conceptions of home, migration, um, what it means to inhabit the contemporary moment and to feel at home in the world. Um, so I'm, I'm starting with the premise that nests have a lot to teach us. And I think that nests have often been um, taken up as a model of traditional understandings of home as safety, as interiority, as being a kind of shielded space from the outside world. And I'm wanting to look carefully at, you know, bird nests in particular in terms of how they're these very complex meshworks of materials and assemblages of materials. They're very beautifully open forms that reconstruct the external world in uh, surprising ways and that aren't permanent dwelling forms that are often um, constructed to serve the necessity of an event and then abandoned. So I'm, I'm looking at um, human and non-human nests in an array of literary and artistic texts and also wanting to conclude that project by thinking about nests in digital contexts, um, asking what it means to be at home online, um, given that many of us spend more and more of our time there and sort of drawing upon uh, programming language of, of nested functions as a way that information is organized in, um, in, a, in a programming sense. Um, but also sort of, you know, continuing my, my interest in thinking about the nest as a particular kind of nest work, mesh work, network, um, that is um, important to the way we are, I think, the changing understandings of, of home and migration. Well, Erin, I hope when you're ready to share that work, you'll come back and talk to us about it. Erin Edwards, thank you for being on the New Books Network. I'm Eric LeMay. And you've been listening to an interview with Aaron Edwards, author of The Modernist Corpse, Posthumanism, and the Posthumous on the New Books Network.